The New Testament reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 2. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God was made him, has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from the, this corrupt generation. So those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. Awe came upon everyone, because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This is a word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, O Lord. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how can he be his son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. As he taught, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor and banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearance say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which are worth a penny. Then he called his disciples and said to them, Truly I tell you, the poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. 
for all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God, Father, Son, and Spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight this morning. You are our rock and redeemer, and we give you thanks for your word and spirit and ask for your blessing upon our time now as we open your scriptures. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. So today is Juneteenth, um, which is... uh, a celebration of freedom. Um, it's, a, it's our newest national holiday. Uh, it's, it was made a national holiday about this time last year. And um, this week I was reading an article by Russell Berry. He's a pastor up in New York and writes for Our Daily Bread and does some other things. But um, Russell Berry wrote a, a little article called For Christians, Juneteenth is a Time of Jubilee which uh, is a lovely article and just reflecting on the spiritual significance of celebration of freedom, Um, specifically in our American context, celebrating the end of slavery, even as we also acknowledge the gap between the promise uh, of full equality for all and, um, and what we currently experience in our nation. But we can celebrate this moment of freedom. And Russell Berry, uh, he, he, I love his article because he ties that moment to the moment of Jubilee. Um, and Jubilee was one of the first names for this Juneteenth celebration, actually. So back in the day when they were first starting to celebrate, if you don't know the story, essentially a general arrived in Galveston, Texas, two and a half years after uh, the Emancipation Proclamation and brought with him uh, troops to enforce the emancipation of slaves in Galveston, Texas. And that happened on June 19th, 1865. Juneteenth is the uh, celebration of that moment, that anniversary. And it's a local festival in Galveston, Texas that has, uh, through a grassroots movement over time, caught on in other places uh, and more recently uh, grew to national significance and then became a national holiday. But Early on, the names for this day were like Emancipation Day uh, and uh, Freedom Day, Juneteenth, a number of names. But one of the names was Jubilee Day. Because on the day, on the very first anniversary of Juneteenth, when they first celebrated this in 1866, uh, a group gathered to celebrate the one-year anniversary of this moment and then marched to uh, a church uh, now known as Reedy Chapel. It's an AME church there in Galveston. And they celebrated the Jubilee of the Lord. And if you're, if you're aware of when Jesus arrives on the scene and he starts to preach in Luke chapter four, he says something really significant where Jesus, in, he basically starts his own ministry talking about Jubilee, where he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor or to proclaim the Jubilee year. This is how Jesus begins talking about the kingdom of God that he has come to proclaim, embody, and bring on earth as it is in heaven. And this becomes a category that's operative in Jesus's own ministry and in the, and in the minds of the disciples who follow him, embodying a Jubilee way of life, a freedom 
way of life, a liberating and peacemaking and justice-seeking way of life that was spoken about in the prophets, which is where Jesus is preaching from, and then proclaimed through Jesus's own mouth and then given to his disciples to proclaim after him as the gospel spreads throughout the world. And so this summer, we're spending time in the book of Acts and we're reading this story and we come to this moment in the text where we're still in the day of Pentecost. This is now the third week in a row that we've been camped out on this first day when the Spirit of God comes. But what we see in that moment is when the Spirit comes and the apostles stand up in the temple and start to declare what it is that God is doing, these same kinds of categories become operative in the way that they talk about what God is doing in their midst. And the coming of the Spirit is this great liberating moment for God's people when God gives the great big gift that he couldn't give until the Messiah did the work that was the Messiah's to do. And what Peter gets up to, the, to tell everybody in the temple when they experience this moment and the Spirit of God comes upon these people and you've got 120 of them there at the beginning who are filled with the Spirit and they start to tell their story. And it says 3,000 more were added that day as they listened and heard. But the story they were telling was the story of Israel and how it's been fulfilled in Jesus. They go back to the prophets. They go back to the Psalms. They go back to David and others. And they go back to, the, to these, these places in the story of Israel and in their collective memory that pointed them forward to a day when God would set them free. And that day would be marked by the coming of the Spirit. That's when you would know that this age of the kingdom had dawned. That's when you would know that the Jubilee year, so to speak, had really dawned. This year Jesus had come to talk about and to enact in his own life. And so Juneteenth becomes uh, an occasion for us as we, as we celebrate freedom, as we lament the evils that preceded it, that made the occasion necessary, and as we lament the gap that exists now between the way things are and the way things ought to be, this becomes an occasion for us to enter this moment of this story of Pentecost, to listen to the sermon afresh, and to ask the same question that the hearers in that day asked, which is, what should we do then? And that's really the story that we get to this morning. As the, as the crowd is listening, Peter tells the story. He tells the story of the prophet Joel and how this day that they had awaited had come. This day when God would pour out his spirit on all flesh and even the sons and the daughters and the male and female slaves of the community would all be prophets because they'd be filled with the spirit the way the prophets of old had been filled with the spirit. And he goes back to Psalm 16 and he starts talking about God did not let his Holy One see corruption in the pit. He didn't abandon Jesus to death, but he raised him up. And in doing so, he has made him Lord and Messiah. This is the one attested by God, who is the one at the very center of God's plan. He is the human being who embodies the reign of God on earth and who is moving the story forward into a new moment. And Peter is saying, and that moment is now. And the new now, the new normal, is marked by the presence of the Spirit. 
Here this morning, we just read the the last little bit of Peter's sermon where he goes to Psalm 110 and he starts to actually one-up David. And he's like, you know, he goes back to David with Psalm 16 and he's talking about how Jesus is the fulfillment of that. When he goes to Psalm 110 and he's talking about all this stuff about, you know, the, the enemies being the footstool and all this stuff, he's basically showing Jesus as greater than David. You know, they looked back on David as the great one, the greatest one in their history who kind of embodies this golden age or high point of the kingdom. But Jesus, according to Peter, is like the greater David, the one who's so much greater than David that he's actually seated at the right hand of the Lord himself and is the one God has made both Lord and Christ. And then, of course, he he tells the crowd that this Jesus, this one who God has made both Lord and Christ, is the one whom they crucified. And they hear it and they're cut to the heart. Because what they're hearing is that these people filled with the Spirit of God are pointing to Jesus, the crucified and risen Christ. And they're saying, this is the one. This is the human being God has anointed and appointed to actually reveal to us who God is, what humanity is, and what God is actually doing in the world. We listen to him and we follow him. But they're recognizing immediately that their initial response to Jesus wasn't to receive him as a gift, but to reject him. And they're cut to the heart and they ask Peter, so what do we do? What should we do? I was reading this week in a commentary on Acts by Willie James Jennings, uh, an absolutely beautiful commentary. And he's he's keying in on this question in this moment and he's, he's actually pointing out the offense of this question that's baked into it. Because what you have here is a scene at the temple These are religious people who are involved. These are religious people doing their religious stuff. They're at the temple for the Feast of Weeks doing the celebration and they're hearing in that context, Peter speaking and telling the story of Israel through the lens of Jesus. And they're in the moment of worship, recognizing that something's gotta change. Something disruptive has happened in Jesus. Something that disrupts the religious establishment, something that disrupts their way of doing life. And Jennings writes this, he says, a change is taking place among the people of God. Faith in Israel is taking a new direction and it all begins with a simple but terrifying question, what should we do? Now inside the explosion that is coming of the spirit, these who have heard Peter's message confront the reality of a more excellent way of faith in Israel. The question they asked Peter is indeed terrifying because it begs the question of religious necessity. Why should those who are already faithful in Israel, committed to its way of life, religious practices and sensibilities, need to ask the question, what should we do? Their lives already answer such a question. The question itself is at the door of offense. Although the irenic is concealed within the question, nonetheless, it suggests a necessary change for those already of committed faith. We must hear in this question the astounding work of the living God who will not be relegated to Israel's past, but will reveal divine faithfulness to ancient promise in the present moment. And in so doing, we see the precise way Israel's Lord alters theological frames of reference by demanding more of those who believe.
What should we do? That's the question that the religious people ask of Peter and the disciples as they hear what God has now done in Christ. And they're recognizing that their way of life and faith up to this point is, is now lacking and that Jesus demands a response. Now they're in a unique moment where God has done something pivotal in human history, something new, something unique. We're not in that exact moment, right? But we are in, moment, in a moment, I think, where similarly, we're in a moment of rupture in our society and in the church that does reveal our need to ask the question, what should we do, right? What should we do? The last several years have been some of the most tumultuous, certainly in our lifetime, but really in the history of our nation and our society and in the church. We have seen ugly realities that have been exposed in new ways. Realities of racial injustice. We've seen realities of moral failure of religious leaders. We've seen the institutional hypocrisy of the church exposed in horrific ways that will turn any of our stomachs. We've been disappointed with leaders that we looked up to and followed. And we're recognizing that the church in this country has in many ways uh, followed the same script as celebrity culture or has followed the same script of individualism or of greed or of, you know, seeking power. And, and over and over again, we're coming to these realizations that this is a broken thing. And our way of following God in this time and place needs to change. So what should we do? It's a moment of rupture that demands a response. And it can be tempting to just look away and pretend that the problems aren't there. It can also be tempting to get so mired in the problems that we simply despair, become cynical and walk away. I understand both of those temptations deeply. But I think the response that we see of the crowd here in this Pentecost moment can inspire us to respond to our moment of rupture in a way that fits what God is doing in Jesus. And the response that Peter gives to their question, what then should we do, I think is still relevant to us even in the moment that we inhabit today. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now this word repent is one that often carries a lot of baggage for us because we hear it mostly from the angry shouts of street preachers or whatever who you know, use it as a bludgeoning tool uh, to, to berate pedestrians walking around the city who aren't looking for wisdom, but may find it through an amplified voice and someone telling you to repent, right? And it often sounds cruel, it sounds harsh, but the word simply means turn around and come home. <laughs> repent means turn around. And the invitation to repent when we're talking about the God who reveals himself in Jesus isn't like a, isn't an angry repent or else, like a threat. It's an invitation to come home. That the God who has made all things, the God who has made you, the God who knows you to the depth of your being and loves you is also a God who seeks you. 
a God who comes for you, a God who's come for the, for the entire creation, who stepped out of heaven and who's been willing to take to himself all the suffering and even the death of humanity living life away from God who's been willing to allow all of the deadly consequences of our living away from God and against one another to himself, to be crushed by those things so that we would not, to die beneath the weight of all of our human tragedies and to rise in triumph from it, to be made both Lord and Christ, to take his throne at the right hand of the Father and to pour out his spirit on God's people so that we might join him in living like that in the world. That eternal life begins now as we live in union and communion with the eternal one. Repent is the invitation to turn around and see that the Lord has sought you in love all your days and is right there with you. Not angry, but ready to embrace He's come for you. He's come for me. He's come for us. He's come for this place. He's come for this society. He's come for his church. He's not a God who abandons us to the pit. He doesn't let his Holy One see corruption. He's a God of resurrecting power. And this is what the Spirit is. You see, the gift of the Spirit was the mark of this new age of God's people, this new age of history that would come. And it would be this moment when God would live intimately with his people in such a way that the, all the barriers that used to exist would be eradicated and God would simply be here. And what Jesus has accomplished through his death and resurrection has opened up the way for God to be here with us as spirit and for us to be connected to him and one another as the people of the spirit. Not a religious tribe, not a people who've got this list of principles that we believe and draw the boundary where we draw it and police the borders, but to be the people who are fixed upon Jesus in loving communion with him and with one another and who are practicing a dynamic of life together that flows from the very fountain of Jesus's heavenly throne. Often when we talk about the gospel, especially in the Western world, especially in the last four or 500 years, the message that comes through is a message of acquittal, right? Like you're guilty, but because of Jesus, you're now not guilty. You're forgiven, you're acquitted, whatever. And that is absolutely true. I don't want to take away anything from that message, but that message stops short of the real full goodness of what we get here. Because it's not just acquittal that God offers us in Christ. It's attachment. God actually makes himself available to us intimately by spirit because he can now, because Jesus fulfilled all of the things. Jesus took care of all of the business and he tore down all of the walls. And so God is now nearer than you know. God dwells in and among us. God is available to you for intimate knowledge and communion. And we're called to live this way as the community of the church, to practice this together. And we get this description of the early church and how they responded to this moment when the 3,000 were added and all of a sudden they go from 120 to like 3,120. 
It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon every one because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. This is a picture of intimate, dynamic, communal life. And if you get the picture, when it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, literally they were going to the temple and the apostles were teaching day by day. I mean, if you look down there at verse 46, it says, day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts. What we're getting is this picture of a public and private practice of the early church. That there in that moment, right, right following the, the Pentecost moment, and the, and the Jewish festival, the Feast of Weeks, they're there going to the temple day by day. And you can imagine these apostles, the 12, like teaching groups of people, they're taking up the role of the rabbi that Jesus had, had done for them. They've taken the mantle that he's given them, and now they're doing it just as he commissioned them to do it. And so you've got the apostles now as the rabbis, as the, as the disciplers, making disciples, and the Lord is adding to their number day by day as they're in the temple, which is a place that can hold like 200,000 people, by the way, up on the Temple Mount. It's massive. And the crowds would be all in there, and they would be probably in this area called Solomon's Porch, which stretched all the way along one side, this colonnade area, which is where they would do a lot of the public teachings and gatherings. And so you can just imagine this band of disciples out there as 12 or so apostles teaching these groups, groups of 100 or 200, whatever, day by day making disciples and the Lord adding to their number every day as they were doing this public act. And then they're gathering in homes, it says, and they're breaking bread. They're basically doing community life at home with one another, having meals and praying together publicly and privately, and they're sharing their stuff. As needs arose, anybody who had stuff that they could sell, they'd liquidate their assets and they'd use the money to meet the needs. So you've got people who have homes hosting stuff and people who don't have homes finding a meal and a family there in those places. It's powerful, it's dynamic, it's intimate. And this is what it looks like when the church is filled with the spirit and the people of God begin to ask the question, what do we do now? because the way we've been doing it is lacking. Friends, if we can see in Jesus, this one whom God has made both Lord and Christ, the full revelation of the heart of who God is and this vision of what humanity looks like when it's done with God. Can we also recognize that the question, so what should we do, is a good one for us to ask as well. What should we do to participate more deeply in the things of God? What should we do to deepen our own life of discipleship of loving God and loving neighbor? What should we do to become a more, a fuller reflection of the beautiful community God envisions where this one new humanity made alive together in Christ by the spirit reflects people from every tribe, tongue, nation, racial identity, generation, age, all of it. What do we do? What bridges do we need to build? What creature comforts do we need to sacrifice? What prayers 
should be in our hearts and minds? What neighbors do we need to be praying for or showing up to bring a meal to? Who do we need to be holding in our heart and our head? And how do we get ourselves more deeply in the flow of the current of this life in the spirit and get off this autopilot of religion that fits at the edge of my life? The invitation is here to enter more deeply into the fullness of what God is doing. And that's really the inspiration behind the Resurrection Rhythms initiative that we've addressed or introduced since Easter. We're trying to just have an easy on-ramp for practices that we can take up that put us in the way of the flow of God's spirit. Whether it's personal practices of worship like prayer or daily scripture reading or things like that. Whether it's habits of community like gathering in people's homes like this to break bread together around a table with eight other people. Or whether it's practices of mission where you realize like, yep, Jesus doesn't lead us into a Christian bubble. Jesus leads us into the world to be the instrument of his blessing to the ends of the earth. So what's a habit I can make in my life to bless a coworker daily or to adopt a place in my neighborhood where I'm gonna show up and be faithfully present and I'm gonna make friends and I'm gonna share the life and love of Christ however I can. What can we do? What should we do as we recognize in Jesus the way of life and the love of God? This is the invitation for us as a church and my prayer for us as resurrection is that as we continue to move through the summer, as we continue to, to wade through the story of Acts and we see the movement of the Spirit and we recognize how God goes before his people and God's people are trying to figure out what the Spirit is up to and trying to keep pace, that we would recognize the invitation for us to get more involved with God in what God is doing in the world, to get more involved personally, to get more involved communally, and to get caught up in that movement in such a way that we ourselves experience something more meaty of the fullness of the joy of the presence of the God who is here, the one who is nearer than we know, this one who by his spirit is right here with you, right here with us. That's my prayer and that's my hope. May God give us grace that it would be so. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we acknowledge that uh, we live in a complicated time. And life in the church and life uh, of our life of faith is complicated right now because it just feels like there's so much going on that's confusing and frustrating and terrifying. Um, and it can be really difficult to navigate the complex world that we live in. But God, you are, you are the Lord. You have made all things. You hold all things together. You've sent your son in the fullness of time to unite all things in him. You've raised him from the dead. You've given us a kingdom that is unshakable, undefiled, not made by human hands, protected in heaven for us. And you've sent your spirit to carry forth your great mission. And you've given us the promise that your church will stand till the end of time. That the gates of hell will not prevail against her. And so we pray, God, that you would send your spirit upon us. Make us alive together with Christ. Renew us in your presence. Help us to want what you want. Help us to discern wisely and well your leading in our lives. 
Protect us from cynicism and despair. Protect us from arrogance and anger. And instead, lead us into your world as peacemakers, as spirit-filled followers of Jesus who seek you and your kingdom first above all else. We desperately need your help. We desperately need your spirit for any of that to be true of us. And so we ask boldly now that you would do just that. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.